um, brings us to the Bible reading from Isaiah 42, 18 to 43, 21. And then Clint will bring us the message. Thanks, Megan. So the reading is from Isaiah 42, starting in verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger who I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious but this people is plundered and looted they are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons they have become plunder with none to rescue spoil with none to save restore who among you will give ear to this will attend and listen for the time to come. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom you have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I gave Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honoured and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the people assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right. Let them hear and say, it is true. 
You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no saviour. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord your God, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honour me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. The church that I grew up in, it was traditional when the reading had been done for the reader to say, this is the word of the Lord. And the congregation would respond by saying, thanks be to God. You know, when God's got things like this to say to us today, how can we not respond with thanks to him? Well, we're very glad to have you with us this morning, especially if you're visiting, especially this is a first time with us, and we hope you are enjoying your time with us, that you'll meet Jesus today in us and in his word. Now, anyone who grew up going to church might have learned the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Maybe even if you didn't grow up in church, you're familiar with the words of that song. There we go. Thanks, Tim. (laughs) And of course, the Bible does tell us that we are loved by God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can read it there in its pages. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible does tell me so. I saw a picture of that book online, and I'm just glad we never had one. Those buttons on the side fill me with dread. But of course, it's easy to read the Bible and to see the words on the page saying, God loves you. But... How do we know that God actually does love us? Does God still love us when everything around us is going wrong? 
fact is, God still loves us when we're the ones going wrong, when we sin against him. Does God still love us when no one else seems to love us? Does God still love us when we don't feel loved or lovable? These are important questions. This morning in Isaiah chapter 42 and 43, I want to show you a God who loves deeply and consistently, loving those who he commits to love. And I hope it's a great comfort and encouragement to you to actually know the God who loves. How about we pray before we go any further? Our Lord and our God, please open your word to us today that we may truly know you in your word and in your Son, our Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we get into this morning's passage, let's get our bearings once more. There's a map up there for you. We're about 600, 700 years before Jesus was born. The last two tribes of God's nation of Israel, his special people, the 12 tribes, the last two tribes are staring down the barrel of invasion and defeat and deportation by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, And that was going to take place ultimately 600 years before Jesus was born. So a little bit on from the time that Isaiah is actually prophesying. This prophecy looks forward to that as an absolute certainty. This is what's going to happen. Uh, The Assyrian Empire is on the wane, and the Babylonian Empire is the new kid on the block. uh, And he's got a bone to pick with just about everybody. This was the divine consequence of Judah's faithlessness. Their failure to trust the Lord and instead trusting in themselves, trusting in the political alliances they could make, and trusting in the false gods of the nations around them. Consequences of that? It's what we call in the Bible the exile. Seventy years, a whole generation spent away from Jerusalem, away from Judah, strangers in a strange land. I mean... What basis could there possibly be for the Lord to love this people? If you've got an outline in front of you, you've got uh, some headings there. might help you as you take notes and follow with us today. Please uh, also have a Bible open with you. It would be very helpful at Isaiah 42 verse 18. How unlovable can you get? If you turn there in your Bible, you'll see a pretty poor character sketch of all that remains of the nation of Israel, God's special people. And, you know, last week we mentioned how they were meant to be the servant of God, the ones who would reflect the Lord and his character and his justice to the world, showing the world that the Lord alone is God. But they failed spectacularly in that job. In verse 18 to 21, even though the Lord has shown his glory and his righteousness by revealing himself and his word to his people, they have been blind and deaf to it. In fact, their eyes and ears have been open, but still fail to actually see and hear. I mean, for those of you who are married, have you ever gone to a cupboard and said, Honey, where is my shirt? It's not in my cupboard. And she tells you, yes, it is. Just look harder. And you're saying, no, it isn't. And she comes over and reaches past you and pulls out the shirt, which you've been staring at the whole time. Sounds like it's not just me. 
In a similar way, Israel's eyes and ears have been opened, but they've actually failed to perceive, failed to listen. Verse 20, he sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. So the exodus from Egypt, the plagues, the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, the wandering in the desert and God's provision through that whole time, the conquest of the promised land. Yes, they know their history, but they don't seem to know their God. Or take the word of God given to Moses, spoken by God from the mountain, written down to be read and proclaimed. They know their Bibles, but they still don't know their God. In fact, even just recently, the Lord spared Jerusalem from certain destruction. You see, the Assyrian Empire swept through the ancient Near East. It completely destroyed the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and came right up to the gates of Jerusalem, laid siege to the city. And the king prayed to God. And the next morning, the people woke up to 185,000 dead Assyrian soldiers. That's in living memory where God won the battle for them, destroyed a mighty empire without them even lifting a finger. And still, they haven't recognized who the Lord is or what he's like, despite their experience of him and their knowledge of his word. So God's people haven't recognized what he's done for them in a positive sense. They also haven't recognized what he's done around them in a negative sense. They've been blind and deaf to the blessings of the Lord in verse 18 to 21 and blind and deaf to the danger of the Lord in verse 22 to 25. The entire northern kingdom destroyed by the same Assyrian invaders that the Lord destroyed at Jerusalem. That's the point of the questions from verse 24 onwards. Have a look with me. Who gave up Jacob to the Luther and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around. But he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. In other words, the people of Judah have failed to take to heart God's judgment on sin, which the Lord demonstrated in the destruction of the northern kingdom and the taking of many Judean cities. The sin of both kingdoms is essentially the same, refusing to walk in the Lord's way or obey his law. So what makes Judah believe that they'll be treated any differently? They deserve nothing more from the Lord than his judgment. Now, this is always a very presumptive question to ask, but just imagine for a moment that you were God, and these were your people, What would you do with them? What would be the right way to treat faithless Judah? If you were the Lord, how would you, for your righteousness sake, magnify your law and make it glorious? To use the the language of verse 21. Well, there's only one option, isn't there? Wipe them off the face of the earth. Wouldn't be wrong for God to do that. But that's precisely what makes the next chapter such a glorious surprise. 
Look with me at verse 1 of the very next chapter. But now. How about that? But now. Thus says the Lord who created you. O Jacob, who he formed, uh, he formed you, uh, O Israel, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Or jump down to verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I love you, says the Lord to his unlovable people. How can he possibly say that? There's nothing about this people which deserves his love. That's when we've got to notice also what kind of love this is. I think sometimes we can have a diluted view of God's love. Yes, he's our loving Heavenly Father, but we imagine him more, I guess, of the sort of you know, father of generations past who loved his children by providing for their needs and by protecting them from danger and disciplining them when they stepped out of line. Sometimes we think that's, that's the kind of God uh, who loves. But the love we see here is far more than that, friends. The Lord does provide for and protect his children and and discipline them when they step out of line for their good. But he's also a deeply personal God. His love for them is personal. And it's warm. And it's tender. And it's gentle. And it's affirming. Wouldn't we all want to know a love like that? Read those words again with me from verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. And verse 4 again, because you are precious in my eyes, and honored, and I love you. Again, the obvious question at this point is how can the Lord possibly love this unlovable people so much? Well, the basic answer is that it's got absolutely nothing to do with them and everything to do with the Lord himself. God's love for his people is not based on their lovability. It's not based on their size, their strength, their performance, or lack thereof. It's not pity. It's not sentiment. It's not based on what we can offer God. The Lord's love for his people is based entirely on himself. Uh, When I was at Bible college in my first year at college, uh, the college built a beautiful new student center right next to our existing uh, buildings. Uh, It was great when it was done, but before they could actually start stacking the bricks, they had to drive huge piles, um, pilings into the the earth to support the weight of the three-story building. And so every day for weeks, we had the earth-shaking thuds of the pile drivers punctuating our lessons at uh, three to five minute intervals. That was fun. Apparently, uh, I read in Victoria that pile drivers are limited to 2,000 smacks a day which sounds like a heck of a lot <laughs> when it's going on just uh, on, the next, uh, on the next block. That's uh, quite a lot. But those pilings ensure that the building is not going anywhere. 
They're driven deep into the earth to secure a structure. And so for the rest of our time today, I'd actually like to show you four foundational truths about the Lord's love for his people, which act a bit like construction pilots, anchoring and supporting this incredible love and allowing him to be the Lord of love that he actually is. We find these in the passage in front of us this morning. The first of these is the Lord's choice. It's clear from the first verses of verse 43. The Lord loves his people simply because he made a choice to love them. Verse 1 again, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you, you are mine. I have redeemed you, I have called you. It actually brings to mind the language of uh, what God said to his people way back at the Exodus. It's something we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. I'll read it for you. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers, to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So not because of anything in the people themselves, simply because the Lord your God has chosen you and loved them. He has set his love on them and chosen them. The Lord loves his people simply because he makes a choice to love them. Don't you find this so comforting in a world which so easily confuses love with lusts or with likes? Love which is based almost entirely on the ebb and flow of feelings. We fall in and out of love. Couples wake up one day only to find, in the words of B.B. King, that the thrill is gone. And they begin divorce proceedings. But God's love is nothing like that, friends. It's absolutely nothing like that. It's based entirely on his choice to love, and it's not based on any flexible feelings on his part. When God chooses to love, that's all it is. It's his divine prerogative. I think it's very comforting to know that, but it does raise another question. If God just chooses to love me, well, can he not then one day just choose not to love me? If we don't earn a stake in his love through our performance, doesn't that give him the right to choose no at any time he wants? Well, that brings us to our next point, which is the Lord's commitment. And we see in these verses the incredible commitment of the Lord to the people he chooses to love. So have a look with me at verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Or remember those nations who once enslaved God's people. I give Egypt as your ransom. 
Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. And, you know, it just goes on and on like this with the things the Lord promises to do for his people. I wonder if you noticed that as Megan was reading for us, how often the Lord says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And he is a God who never breaks a promise. Look at verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. So Egypt, the nation who once enslaved Israel, Babylon, the nation who will enslave them in the future, And yet the Lord rules over these mighty nations and his commitment to his people is such that he now promises to move history for the sake of his love for his people, just as he's done in the past. There is nothing that can stand in the way of God's commitment to his people, friends. You see, the Lord's love for his people is a choice, but it's a choice that he commits to with unbreakable faithfulness. Sometimes it seems that you and I just can't keep our promises. You don't have to be a politician for that to be true of you. With God, he can't break his promises. As he says in verse 13, Also henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? By implication, not even the Lord himself can turn back what he has done. Well, all this faithfulness and divine prerogative, it ultimately flows out of who the Lord is, his own character, his person. This brings us to our third point, the Lord's nature. One of Israel's greatest failures was their trust in idols who cannot see, who cannot hear, who cannot speak, who cannot act. They've got no personality beyond the imaginative stories of the nations who worship them. And usually they were turbulent, sex-mad, capricious characters. What is the Lord of love like? Look at verse 3. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. We'll jump down to verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen. Remember the servant from last week? That you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. It's all down to who God is. He is the one true God. And finally, the passage also highlights the Lord's supreme motivation for doing anything. It's his own glory. See that in verse 7 and verse 21. This is the ultimate goal of everything, to bring glory and praise to the creator of the universe. This is hardly arrogant or proud because this is the Lord we're talking about. I remember a new Christian once saying to me when they came to this church, they found it so strange how we give all this praise and honor and glory to God. They thought it was arrogant until they realized who God actually was. He deserves it. How marvelous then that God should connect his love for his people 
to the pursuit of his glory. There can be no greater aim in all the history of the universe, and God connects his love for his people to that great aim. English Bible teacher David Jackman summarizes it like this. His essential nature itself guarantees his saving intervention. Well, this brings us to our fourth and final foundation of the Lord's love for his people, and that's the Lord's judgment. And perhaps it's a surprising one. That his judgment should be a foundation of his love and something we can rest the Lord's love on. It's clear from what was said back in chapter 42 that the Lord must act against sin. In fact, it deserves his justice. It's the end of chapter 42. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways we would not walk and in whose law, uh, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up. He did not take it to heart. But then look what happens in the very next verse. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In other words, while God's love for his people doesn't ignore their sin or brush it under the carpet, God will love his people by bringing them through judgment on their sin. And this is mirrored, actually, at the very end of the passage in uh, verse 16 to 21, where we actually have echoes of God's saving work in bringing his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. That was judgment on those who rejected God, Egypt and, and the army of Egypt, and God's saving grace to his people who trusted in the blood of the Lamb painted on the doorposts. But, of course, this isn't the old exodus that Isaiah is actually talking about in verse 16 to 21. In fact, in verse 18, he says, in effect, don't just long for the good old days. Instead, he reminds us of something we heard last week in verse 19. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? This is pointing forward to a new exodus. When God will redeem his people, not from slavery in Egypt or exile in Babylon, but from bondage to sin and death. And he will do it through the new servant who we met last week and who will be continue, continually revealed to us in the chapters to come. And it's through the work of the new servant that the Lord will do an entirely new thing to show his unfailing love to his people in an entirely new way. It's through the law, through the servant, the new servant, excuse me, that the Lord will be to his people a savior and a redeemer, allowing judgment to fall, but for them to emerge unscathed. Should remind us of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah had the burning coal from the altar touch his sinful lips, but he felt no pain and his sin was declared to be paid for. 
I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament. Where we find what is really the parallel to what we've read this morning. It's also printed there on your order of service if it's more helpful. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. This is really the New Testament parallel to the the point of what we read in Isaiah 42 and 43 this morning. And it says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us, by the way. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for us. Isn't that the most amazing love? It's not like we've met God halfway. It's not like we've earned a stake in his love. It's not based on who we are, what we've done, or what we haven't done. God's love for us is based entirely on God's choice to commit himself to us in love as our Savior and Redeemer through judging our sin by allowing it to fall on his beloved son, Jesus. And you know, if God chooses to love you like this, there's not much you can do about it. Bible teacher Ray Alton Jr. reminds us, what matters most about you is not what you deserve, but whose you are. What matters most about you is not what you deserve, but whose you are. I heard a story once that went something like this, and please, if you heard the story before, you know where it's from, please come and tell me, because I've I've forgotten. But it goes something like this, that a tourist Christian was visiting a famous mosque in the Muslim world. And he was with a tour group and a a Muslim guide was taking them around the mosque and showing them the history of the mosque and uh, the different features of this beautiful and ancient building. And he was telling them a bit about what Islam is all about and what Muslims believe and telling them about Allah, uh, Allah's character, his power, his glory, his righteousness, his holiness and his love. And the Christian on the tour decided to take a chance. He had a word to the guy, and he said, how do you know? The guy was a bit confused. And so he asked, what do you mean? He said, well, well, how do you know Allah is like that? The guy thought about it, and he said, well, these are the things that Allah has revealed about himself which the prophet wrote down in the Quran. And the Quran tells us what Allah is like. And the Christian said, well, that's, that's very interesting. You know, I'm a Christian. We have a Bible. And in the Bible, we're told what our God is like. The Bible also tells us that our God is holy and righteous, powerful, and full of love. But he's also proved his love by sending his own son, Jesus, 
to die in the place of sinners like me. That's how I know that my God is a God of love. And the Muslim tour guide thought for a moment and said, you know, Allah's done nothing like that. Friends, the God of the Bible is the Lord of love. And he shows us in Jesus a love like we've never known or imagined. I don't know who has broken your heart or withheld love from you or used, to, or used love as a bargaining chip with you, perhaps. I don't know how many of us here have confused love with lust or with likes. I don't know how many here feel truly unlovable today. Or maybe you've just given up on love entirely. It's let you down too many times. If that's you, please listen carefully to what the Bible says today. That the God of the Bible is the Lord of love. He hasn't simply declared his love. He's proved it at the cross of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not because you were lovely or lovable. In fact, when you were at your worst... He loved you the best. And he did it to glorify himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you trust yourself to his love? Maybe today will be the day when you know the love that God has for you in Jesus. Not just in your head, but in your heart as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for loving us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd please assure us of your deep and faithful love for us this morning. Please let Christ dwell in our hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.